and welcome back to Coronavirus, The Whole Story. We hope you had a good time over the summer, whether it was in 35 degree heat or lashing rain. There wasn't any middle ground, was there? Speaking for ourselves, we're glad to be back just in time for the new term and new academic year. My name's Vivian Parry. I'm a writer, broadcaster, UCL alumna and host of this award-winning podcast, which surveys all things coronavirus. Nothing has changed while we've been on holes. This teeny microbe continues to have a giant global impact, every aspect of which is being assessed, tackled, mitigated and illuminated by the incredible minds in all quarters of UCL. If this is your first time with us, hello, you're so welcome. And once you've heard one of your pods, I'm warning you that our fans tell us that we're like a tube of Pringles. You can't resist snacking on all of them. So good to know then that our entire back catalogue of past episodes is available from the UCL Minds website or wherever you get your podcasts. Now, we like a big challenge and we're returning with one of our biggest yet. Can AI save us? And in true UCL interdisciplinary style, I'm joined by an ecologist a researcher of law and a tech CEO to try and answer it in an episode which has been guest produced by Professor Geraint Rees, Dean of the Faculty of Life Sciences. My first guest this week is Professor Kate Jones, the UCL Chair of Ecology and Biodiversity. In her research, Kate uses statistical and mathematical modelling to understand the impact of climate change with a particular focus on emerging infectious diseases from animals. I'm also joined by Dr. Michael Veal, a lecturer in digital rights and regulation. Michael's work seeks to understand emerging digital technologies and how the law should be applied to them and the way they affect citizens, both intentionally and unintentionally. And finally, my third guest is Ali Parser, a UCL alumnus and the CEO and founder of Babylon Health. Babylon Health, as you all know, is a digital healthcare service that enables remote consultations connecting patients and healthcare providers via text and video chat, something that's been ever more important during lockdown. Now, before we start, who's going to volunteer to tell us in 30 seconds what exactly we mean by AI? Ali. Thank you for volunteering me. Um, I, I think it's a hard uh, uh, question to answer uh, in, in 30 seconds because so many people interpret it and define it in so many different ways. But in my mind, it is attempts by machines to replicate some of what humans call intelligence. So it's the ability for machines to do some of our thinking. Now, that is what it should be. And I think the Turing test described it best, that if another human being cannot know the difference between what a machine, uh, whether the other party is a machine or a human that kind of passed the test as artificial intelligence. Uh, and on, but, but, but on that account, I think we are a long way away from having truly general intelligence, but we are kind of hacking our way through it little by little by being able to do the simplest stuff a little bit now and automate it, if that makes sense. Okay, very good. Let me start then with Kate. Um, you focus on emerging diseases, which are principally what we call zoonotic. That is, they've jumped from an animal host into a human one. And with corona, obviously, we think of bats and with pangolins maybe in the mix too. The research you do in this area uses maths and computer science. 
what kind of tools, first of all, do you use in your work and how do you build them? So thanks for having me on. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, I look at broad scale patterns uh, across the globe to understand how and when these kinds of diseases emerge into the human population. So it's an incredibly complex system. So you have to think about how climate change, how anthropogenic activities, human activities like land use change, building cities, agriculture, changes the patterns of animals present, and then the viruses or other pathogens present in the animals, and then how that changes the likelihood of spillover from animals to humans, and then how likely it is from a human that from a pathogen to get from a human to human and spread around the world. So I use a mixture of mathematical models, but also I do I, I do use a lot of process-based models, which are uh, and I use AI for that. So I I look for patterns in the data that I have to then extrapolate into areas I haven't measured. So I I use AI in that way combined with mathematical models to understand and predict what's going to happen next. And this is, uh, uh, is it a learning AI? In other words, you set it up to look for particular patterns and then it develops and sees further patterns. Yeah, so uh, give you an example with Ebola. Uh, we've been producing uh, predictive forecast models of Ebola about where and when we would expect spillovers to happen. So uh, the first stage of that is, is where the pathogen is in the, in the animal populations. So I would look at where these animals have been found in the past, uh, records online and in, in lots of different databases, and correlate that with their habitats and where they live. And so for areas that have not been surveyed, I can then use a prediction, an AI prediction, of where those animals might be. The other way that I can do this is um, my experiments and I've been developing methods for automatic monitoring of populations of animals so that I can use AI to recognise images from, say, camera traps, the cameras you put out in the environment, you get all these images back and I can recognise what species is present in there in, in using an AI process. And I've also been using audio as well. So bats use echolocation and birds make sounds. You can use those sounds to, to build recognisers which can automatically go through the recordings that you make. It's fascinating because of course we, we're all using AI on our phones all the time, which people perhaps don't realise, but you know when our photos are sorted for us, that's an AI function, isn't it? So are you using AI to recognise particular kinds of animals that might be a, um, a special transmission risk? Yeah, we, we've got several different projects across the world which are looking at how uh, human activities are promoting disassembly of ecosystems. So that means changing the animals that are present. And we're finding that if you change habitats into more human dominated places, they become, um, but the animals present are more likely to give you and pass on these zoonotic diseases. So we've been setting up kind of grids of sensors in different countries, in different areas, along gradients of human pressure. So we would have camera traps and audio sensors 
And then we have like petabytes of data to go through. And we've been using AI to process that information to understand how ecosystems change when you have lots of human pressure and then what that means then for spillover. So bats are always perhaps rather unfairly for us lovers of bats uh, implicated. But of course, SARS came via civets and uh, uh, MERS came via camels, I think. So are there any particular species that you are always on the alert for? And what's it telling us now about emerging diseases? Uh, Bats do have a really unfair rap, to be honest. Um, There are lots of different species which are responsible for spillovers and rodents are also one of them but I I think I would uh, be more comfortable instead of blaming certain taxa be looking at our own activities and how we're changing the landscape to promote species which can survive in those landscapes they're very odd landscapes like London is a very very odd heterogeneous landscape full of concrete but also parks It's, it's a very strange place to survive And those kind of activities change the species which are then present in the area. And it turns out that it's those kind of those city loving, the agricultural loving species, which are uh, are a a more risk to us in terms of of, uh, the probability of spillover of a pathogen into us. So it's those kind of synerbic, the city loving, human loving species. uh, animals which are, are, are of more problems which which include passerine birds rodents and some bats so we do try and think about how to monitor those species um, using these remote ai enabled sensors luckily the one thing that londoners know is not to hug pigeons <laughs> so what particular diseases are you most focused on and you most concerned about i think the problem with zoonotic diseases is the unknown nature of the diversity out there so I wouldn't like to (laughs) pin my mask to any particular pathogen I think we need to set up proper surveillance systems and invest in fact huge amounts of money in understanding what viruses and other pathogens are out there in, in the animal populations but crucially we need to understand how our actions are changing ecological systems. And I, and I really do think that the ecology part of the this, this puzzle has been missed out. And I think a lot of money has been, promote, has been pumped into vaccine development, into understanding the symptoms and treatments, but so little money is actually spent on understanding how the environment uh, changes the spillover probabilities from animals to people. And we, we really need a much more joined up approach in order to prevent the next pandemic. So does AI show you the hotspots globally? In other words, so are you using it in a predictive way or is it in a way to understand what's already happening? I think I think that's a really, uh, really interesting question. And it comes uh, down to what you think AI is useful for. And uh, in my research, I found that Relying on AI for prediction is is very difficult because you're usually forecasting into situations that the the pattern recognition system, the AI, has not seen before. And and these underlying processes 
are uh, very difficult to model in a pattern-based analysis. So I've been using kind of both the AI part where I don't have the information that I need to fit, but I then feed that into a more mathematical model because then I can control the, the actual processes which I think are, are operating and then make a prediction and a forecast. So for example, our, our, one of our latest um, analyses is, is on Lassa fever. Lassa fever is a, a hemorrhagic fever like Ebola. And we've been showing that land use change and climate is a really good um, predictor of uh, the number of Lassa cases. And we can, we can use that to, to predict three, months ahead, three to four months ahead what the size and shape of that epidemic is going to be like. And so that, that's a really um, novel way of, of trying to understand using environmental data, AI, and these mathematical processes to understand uh, uh, and make um, informed decisions for the, um, the governments involved. Here's a big question for you. Do you think AI could have predicted this pandemic? Um, AI, perhaps not, but we certainly could have done this. And it's not a shock this has happened. And we've been talking, you know, myself and my colleagues have been predicting something like this would happen for at least 20 years. So it's not a shock. And this area of Wuhan, where this is, disease has emerged, has been flagged as risky for over 10 years. And in, in 2019, there at least three papers which pointed this out. So I don't think it's that hard. I think it's uh, a policy problem. And I think people, we, we need a much more joined up approach between public health, ecology, agriculture and agricultural development and and um, try and vaccine development and and forecasting so I think you know I don't think it's a shock I think it's a missed opportunity fascinating so Kate has explained the great power of uh, AI particularly to predict the shape and size of uh, outbreaks as with Lassa fever but it's your job Michael to understand how it can be used responsibly. How do you go about evaluating new AI tools in that in terms of their potential to help or to harm society? That's a really good question. In many ways we start by by looking at law, ethics, fundamental rights and human rights. Um, the the core part I think with with AI is not to be dazzled by the technology. You have to to very carefully and with care look at the business models how um, any use fits into you know, what the, the public agency is trying to do or what a certain business is trying to do in both the short term, but also the medium and long term. We see that, that there are different roles of AI that can, they, they can have uh, immediate political effects. So we can look at the use of, um, admittedly, it was only uh, linear regression and multi-level modeling in the, um, the exam result algorithm from Ofqual in the UK, which caused an immediate political explosion. But we can also look at the use of AI to profile people online or in physical environments and to, to create power for big platforms like Google and Facebook over the medium and long term. So it's important to not lose track of, of that, um, that aspect and how it interplays with the, the broader systems. And can we talk about the track and trace scheme? which has been causing all sorts of issues uh, by itself. 
has it been helping to stop the spread of the virus? So I think it's it's certainly an idea of, um, I think of what you mean by that is the the technology side of track and trace. So definitely contact tracing is a is a crucially important oh, tool. Yes, no, 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 we, it's the tech, tech side I'm, I'm thinking of. Yeah. Um, so early on in the pandemic, I, I was uh, working with, with colleagues, particularly in, in Switzerland and, and Belgium, and uh, we were responding to uh, the notion that, that many countries, particularly Singapore, Hong Kong, and also China, had taken very uh, technological routes uh, to, to dealing with a pandemic or an epidemic then. Um, they were using large linked data sets. Many of them were trying to use telecoms data or Bluetooth data from mobile devices to augment or even um, or take a large play a large part in contact tracing efforts. Now the concern that we had there uh, is that take that to many countries in the world that have uh, probably greater respect for fundamental rights and uh, citizens are, are mistrustful. AI has been misused and it has caused uh, problems and anxieties um, and, and uh, concerns around discrimination and transparency. Uh, so our role there was to say, could we build a kind of system that would, would help contact tracers, but which would, would put privacy and human rights first? Um, and, and we did this quite early on with, with researchers. We effectively built um, something that, that public health authorities could use in apps for, for Bluetooth connections between phones to see if a phone had been near each other, but it would have the quality that no data would about you would be leaving your phone. Um, so it could be done without creating a large central database of who saw who. Um, the, the worry with that central database, I think, was exacerbated during COVID because, uh, because of the great uncertainty. Nobody really knew if technical interventions will work or, or many of the qualities of this disease. Uh, and, and you could anticipate that if uh, governments uh, had access to a really large, uh, what's called social graphs, net, yeah, networks of who saw who in society, that could in many, in, in the wrong hands, become quite a coercive tool to allow uh, a government to send certain people home or, or allow certain people out of their houses uh, in a very orchestrated way that, that could really have um, effects on, on, uh, on, on many groups, uh, persecution and, and the like. Uh, so we were very concerned about that. Is there any difference, apart from in scale, between the kind of track and trace um, systems that, you know, shoe leather epidemiology has done, you know, since the time of Jon Snow for, for instance, um, very sensitive sexually transmitted disease and something like um, this COVID tracking? Is there a, a, a fundamental difference apart from that one of scale? Yes, there is. So, so the idea that, that it was never that, um, that technological interventions like a Bluetooth tracing system would replace traditional contact tracing. It was uh, very specifically aimed at times when individuals may have, have spent time with somebody they don't remember or they might not know the name of. Um, and, and it was designed to do so to alert these people uh, rapidly. So we were still at that time, we still are learning about the exact dynamics of the disease, uh, how quickly it spreads for how long it's contagious, how long it can be incubated, the effects of asymptomatic uh, individuals on, on the entire modeling of, of the system. And so there were, there were specific things that you, we, you couldn't contract, contact trace people before that an individual was sitting behind on a bus 
but hadn't uh, you know hadn't talked to or wasn't aware of the name of. Some places would do that with CCTV cameras and attempt to 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 try that, but that just really wouldn't scale. So there are some differences here, but I think time will still tell the uh, the usefulness of any of these interventions um, uh, because because this is the first time that these technologies have have been deployed. But now they're deployed uh, are really uh, around the world and are, are are growing in adoption quite rapidly. We always talk about these kind of things in terms of risk versus benefits. And we perceive COVID-19 as a huge risk. Are we right to really put all our concerns to one side because we face this, what seems to us to be such an enormous risk? Do you think track and trace, for instance, would have been worth it in the end? Um, I, I think contact tracing will definitely be worth it. The, the question that, that we put forward uh, early on was, was, do you have to accept uh, uh, privacy or potential discrimination intrusions in order to have a technological intervention? So you know, going back to the question of can AI save us, one of the things that AI has done is it's really blinded a lot of people in computing to any alternative that isn't collecting a huge amount of data and putting it all in one place. Um, and seeing later on what you want to do with it. Um, I, I think we've seen it, and Kate was, was highlighting that you know, AI has not, is not necessarily very good at, at predicting uh, dynamics we haven't seen before. It's, it's a pattern recognition system. It can't go beyond what it's seen in training data. Uh, and what we'd found really uh, as an alternative is to say, um, uh, do you need to collect all this data or can you focus on a particular purpose? If you need to make contact tracing happen effectively, uh, and you want to do that technologically, you might not need to have data all centralized in one place. It can be kept on everybody's individual phones. There doesn't have to be a privacy or human rights trade-off. We don't have to set aside human rights for the risk of COVID. We can actually have both. But that requires us to think about the problem we're facing really carefully. Say, what are we trying to achieve with this technological intervention for contact tracing? Um, and, and how would we get there in a proportionate way? And that's where, where law, human rights, data protection law can really be a, a pretty guiding force. And hugely important. Thank you very much. Just to remind you all that you're listening to Coronavirus, The Whole Story, a podcast brought to you by UCL Minds. If there's a question about coronavirus you'd like our researchers to answer, email us at minds at ucl.ac.uk or tweet at UCL. Let me turn that to Ali. You're the CEO of a company that enables remote healthcare at a time when everyone is looking for remote solutions to things we normally do in person. Tell us a bit about Babylon and how it works. Where does AI come into this? I built a chain of hospitals and, uh, and what the insight we came up when we were delivering healthcare in hospitals was that actually if you give people a lot of healthcare up front, you can help them avoid emergencies and crisis. And emergencies and crises is what you and I call sick care, uh, which we're usually very good at in most healthcare systems, rather than keeping people healthy. Now, if we park the doctor inside your home, that person, she would probably monitor you and your family very well. You can ask any questions you want, and you, your chances of having emergency and crisis would reduce. Uh, that is obviously impossible to do, because of uh, the questions of accessibility and affordability of this. Um, and if you think about accessibility, how do you make it accessible? That's 
that's easier problem to solve as long as you can deliver most of the healthcare most people need. On devices nowadays, most of them have. That's highly accessible. Uh, we deliver healthcare to the population of Rwanda at scale, and most people don't even have a, a, a smartphone. The, the issue is there is no accessibility without affordability. And if you look at where the costs in healthcare go, they about two-thirds of all costs, if you cut it by people, go into salary. And if you cut it by diseases, about 70% of costs goes into predictable, preventable diseases. And the role of AI is fundamentally to deal with this issue of how do we, on one hand, automate uh, as much as what expensive, rare resources do uh, in healthcare, um, uh, to be able to help people to self-manage themselves better on one hand and only let our doctors and nurses do uh, what are more complex, uh, as the jargon in the industry says, uh, trade at the top of their license. And the second one is how do we, pre- how do we monitor people uh, to be able to, do, uh, to see predictable, preventable diseases and deal with them when they're a 10-pound problem before they become a 1,000-pound solution. So what then did Babylon uh, do during the pandemic? You know, was it for you just business as usual, but kind of on on steroids? Or have your services been adapted? Uh, In a a way, it was business as usual. And in a way, it was almost everything we've done up to now in the last five, six years was in in waiting for this moment. Uh, Because if you look at... uh, uh, what they describe as telemedicine companies, which is putting a doctor or a nurse behind a mobile phone. But a doctor and nurse has to take as much time and is as rare and is as expensive behind a mobile phone as if they were inside their uh, clinic. They're more accessible, they are uh, more convenient, but they are no more affordable. Uh, uh, so what you saw is many of these telemedicine companies just had to go and rush and hire more and more doctors and nurses to deal with uh, the, the excess in demand. What we saw was that we saw about, we quadrupled the amount of engagement we had, interactions we had, the clients we had, but we barely had to increase our numbers of doctors and nurses because what we managed to set up was to use technology to parse demand into the most appropriate appropriate way of solving it. So some, for instance, one of the things we did, Vivian, was we saw very early on, people are calling our doctors and saying, well, everybody says, wash your hands. How do I do that? Uh, now, when accessibility is immediate, you can imagine people very uh, easily doing that. So we put produce a simple video. There's nothing AI about it. Uh, that uh, over 100,000 people a day were watching very early on on how do you wash your hands clinically. Uh, and then, and then obviously, uh, um, when you go and present yourself with a symptom to a doctor, in early days, it was very simple, basically rule-based. Uh, if you have temperature, if you have this, that, the other, uh, then you have to self-isolate. So it's very easy. There's nothing, no AI about this. It's a basic rule-based thing to digitize that and give it to people. And then when they're at home, they need to be monitored. So our technologies monitor them. And if they needed to ask people something, what we found was most of the questions were highly repeatable and highly almost non-clinical. So we put in place a, a group of uh, clinically supervised but non-clinicians 
to look after people and their basic questions through a chat system. And and long story short, what we saw was that almost 80% of our demand uh, was dealt with without going to our doctors. Um, and, and that was what a variety of technologies. AI has become really fashionable, uh, but we need to be careful that we don't try to have a hammer and then see every problem as a nail. Sometimes much simpler digitizing technologies will do the same job. So there, AI is, is almost doing a job of a kind of Harry Potter sorting hat. You know, it's, it's, it's putting people into, you know, readily answered question buckets rather than then reserving doctors for perhaps what they're best at is the more complex diagnostics. Yes, and AI can do some complex uh, diagnostics too. We just recently published a paper, our scientists published a paper in the Nature Communication where uh, it uh, showed that on a series of uh, tests, and that's on the test environment, and I have to emphasize that, uh, because uh, for AI, it's so much easier to operate under control test environment than the real life. But under the control test environment, it outperformed 73% of the doctors that it was that sat the same uh, tests, uh, basically. Uh, so, and, and actually it performed better when the situation was more complex. Uh, but it did so not by using uh, basic machine learning techniques, uh, that or pattern recognition that was referred to earlier, but it did so by using uh, counterfactual uh, uh, simulations, uh, which is which is a different technique in uh, in AI. And so AI can do quite a lot, but yet it can do quite little when you compare it to human brain. And I think and I think there is a lot of hype and exaggeration that goes on. And what we find is exactly as you described. Uh, Vivian, it's that it has its best result when it is a tool in the hands of human experts uh, to get them to simplify and automate some of what they have to do. So a final question for you, uh, Ali, how do you protect patients when collecting the data which you need your systems to train on and develop the service? It, it's a really important question, and uh, we try to the constant complaint and detriment of our scientists and, and, and our clinicians to protect that data incredibly, incredibly carefully. Uh, and, and, and nowadays, obviously, uh, it's much better because there's legislations in place that will force everybody to ask uh, the patients or any user of uh, or giver of any data, whether the data can be used for general research. But we try to make sure those that, that data that we use is unidentifiable as much as, as possible and collectivized. Uh, but it's a constant, uh, it's a constant, uh, uh, if you wish, uh, pursuit of excellence in this. There is no silver bullet. And I'm glad that more and more people are waking up. Uh, I mean, the other day I used the tool just to see what Google has on me. And I was shocked to see the amount of data they keep on me, which if I knew they'd had, I wouldn't want them to have. So it's, it's, an, it's a very important work that Michael 
and others like him are doing to bring the ethic uh, back into uh, back into this field and ask the hard questions that policymakers need to ask. Because I think if you leave the market to its own devices, I am not sure it will end up with the right answer. And I think that's an area that we increasingly need to have clear policies on and impose a safeguarding solution. Thank you very much. Now, I want to ask you all, because AI has, as we've heard, been a very useful tool in understanding and in supporting the work of the health services during the pandemic and adapting to the new normal. But I wonder how has AI itself been affected by the pandemic? And to finish up our episode this week, I want to ask each of you, how has the pandemic changed your thoughts about how we should use AI in the future? Let me turn to Michael, first of all, on that. I think that, that one thing that we've, we've learned through the pandemic is is how to deal, not necessarily successfully, with really, really strong uncertainty. You're going through um, and, and, and really being faced with something that is hugely disruptive to society, but, but which we don't understand uh, the dynamics of, we don't understand uh, how they're changing, um, many, many uncertainties and having to get to grips with, with also how the scientific method interacts with these uncertainties. Um, and insofar as you know, machine learning is a part of AI, machine learning is, is really quite terrible at, at uh, predicting uh, things it has not seen before or which change quickly. Uh, and I think that the, the, it has really proven the value of a lot of, of more traditional modeling methods of uh, understanding dynamics and, and, and putting them manually into models and also the uncertainty that comes with those models. So we've seen a huge amount about the politics of modeling play out, uh, how disease is going to spread or not. And I think it's, a, it's created an awareness and appreciation and, and hopefully it will take us beyond focusing on AI as a, as a statistical silver bullet and have us think more carefully about the role of computing, statistics uh, and, and modeling in society more generally. So for you, you know, AI has been put firmly back in its back in its box. Kate, how about you? Uh, I think Ali and Michael have uh, really eloquently said, you know, what I think about this fact that AI is 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 a tool in human expert hands to help them, and I agree with what Michael and Ali were saying completely. But but I also would like to add that I've been quite um, infused and encouraged by the creativity of a lot of people using AI for this pandemic. So for CT scans, for using AI to diagnose CT scans, and also uh, thermal imaging of people's temperatures. So, so I think there's quite a lot on, on testing and diagnosis, which is, is really interesting. And also kind of looking at internet chatter to pick up clusters of symptoms, I think is is a really cool way of uh, of kind of an early warning system, and and even like just experimenting with different models and and combining different models together. So there was a um, a group in Shanghai who was who've produced an AI model to kind of rival some of the process based models from Imperial, for example. And that, I think that's quite good. Really, it's quite good to have different approaches and different thoughts on this problem. So Ali. Have you been, you know, going through the pandemic, actually thinking about the future, you know, thinking about potential that's been thrown up by the pandemic for AI? Absolutely. I think what the pandemic showed 
is that when the pressure comes, the existing systems will find it very difficult to cope uh, with the extra demand. You must never forget, Vivian, that we spend $10 trillion annually on healthcare globally, and we only look after half of the world population. Five out of seven billion people in the planet have no access to secondary care uh, or surgery or a hospital. So uh, we need to do something differently. And I think what AI uh, has shown in this pandemic, but I think it's true even before, is that it will be a very important tool in enabling us to scale our ability to deliver healthcare to many more people. And I think um, the promise about AI is true about the promise about most technologies, which is at the beginning it will do a lot less than people hype it to do, but eventually it will do a lot more than any of us can today imagine. Um, so I am both encouraged, uh, optimistic, and scared and pessimistic about uh, what it can bring, because it's a Pandora box we're opening, uh, and we better know what we're opening and how to control it, because I think it's going to do far beyond any of our imaginations today uh, can articulate. Well, that's a perfect place to end our absolutely fascinating discussion today. You've been listening to Coronavirus, The Whole Story. This episode was presented by myself, Vivian Parry, produced by UCL with support from the UCL Health of the Public and UCL Grand Challenges, and edited by the splendid Carriage Bradley. Our guests today were Professor Kate Jones, Dr. Michael Veal, and Ali Parser. And the episode was guest produced, a first for us, by Professor Garant Rees. If you'd like to hear more of these podcasts from UCL Minds, subscribe wherever you download your podcasts or visit ucl.ac.uk forward slash coronavirus. This podcast is brought to you by UCL Minds, bringing together UCL knowledge, insights and expertise through events, digital content and activities that are open to everyone. Looking forward to meeting you all again soon. Bye for now.